Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We come to this camp, have Bibles in hand. We pray now that we would give you the attention, that we would hear you speak through your word, and that you would change us. That on the things we have uh, already made up our mind about, that we would change our mind because you change our mind. On the things that we need to move to action by faith, we pray that you would move our hearts. And Father, we pray, give us a picture of the underworld from your word, so that not just we understand it, but we know whom to trust as we respond to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would bet my boots that you've come to this camp with many questions. I'd bet my boots. Heaps of questions. You know, really, some really important questions, I suppose. Questions like, um, will I get to sleep tonight? Will I get the top bunk? Questions like, what is this game they call rugby that we're going to play later? Uh, maybe you've got some other questions. Uh, questions like, can't we just play soccer? Um, I wonder if we're, you know, hanging out socially. I wonder if that, that cute girl from Geelong will notice my Bible skills. <laughs> maybe you're asking the question, I wonder if that nice guy from Bendigo will, you know, pray with me? Yeah, some questions are really important, aren't they? I bet they're the kind of questions of camp, but I bet you've got questions about the underworld you just can't wait to get answered here. And I'm glad you do. These questions are really important. They're the questions about the reality of the world that we live in. Questions like, is there more to the world that I can see with my eyes? Questions like, who is over there? Who is out there? What is this underworld? What about my experiences of the underworld? They're different than someone else's experiences. What about how do we deal with the underworld? How am I equipped to do that? Where is this underworld? This morning we're asking this initial question of underwear. It's not the kind of underwear that, you know, like, um, you know, I know what you're thinking, right? It's, it's not that underwear, you know, if you packed it. And it's not the underwear of Super Mario Kart either. Apparently there's a, there's a realm in Super Mario of underwear. It's not that either. It's the question of, what is this place anyway? Maybe you've come to kick off camp and you've signed up and you've seen the brochure and thought, underworld, cool, maybe it's something with the ocean. What is this place? The underworld is one of those things that we know about but don't know a lot about. And this morning we're asking a question in our first talk. We're asking our question, really, what is the underworld? But there's a second part to that question. How do we know? What is the underworld and how do we know? This first talk about talks and Bible discussions into the underworld will answer that question. We're really looking at determining and knowing how we deal with the underworld in this question. That's what it's all about. And the underworld, by no doubt, is a hot topic. It's really a hot topic today. Just think about how our world and the underworld interact. Today, underworld is the new black, isn't it? You look at our world and the underworld, following the outline there, uh, our world and the underworld, the, the underworld is the new black, Harry Potter, Twilight, Edward Cullen, oh, Edward. As Bella says, as Bella says, you're beautiful. You know, the underworld is beautiful to some people. It's all hot and cool and sexy, and don't worry guys, I've thought of you too. The film series Underworld, by the title, with Kate Beckinsale, you know the kind of DVD cover? She's in the kind of the black gear and the pistol, and she's like... 
The underworld is so sexy today, isn't it? It just, you know, gets us all going and we're all interested in it. <laughs> um, but if you're not a hormone-blown 15-year-old without a girlfriend and a grip on reality... <laughs> maybe, maybe you're an adult. You know, we're not into the kind of the, uh, the underworld DVDs and you know, Harry Potter and we're past Edward. Maybe you're an adult now. And maybe you're an adult, and the underworld for you is not sexy so much as perhaps it's sensible. Have you noticed how sensible the underworld is for the adult world? I mean, on the morning show yesterday, it's that one of those adult shows, you know, like they have coffee and sit around on stools and interview people that are cool. On the morning show yesterday, they had this psychic morning tea, you know, segment, because it's sensible. Everyone's into it, and if you're not, where are you? You know, there's horoscopes and star signs, we're into ghosts and demons and devils and witches and warlocks, magic and curses, occult, future readings, fortune-telling, superstition. It's the new black. The underworld just fascinates us. It just grips our attention. It pervades our culture. If you look in the history of humanity, it's a fun thing to do. I imagine art students have done it a couple of times. If you look in the history of humanity... There is this history of a fascination with the underworld. I mean, the medieval period, for example, they made up nursery rhymes. They shaped their culture around it. You know, Ring a Ring of Rosie? It's not a pleasant little nursery rhyme. It's all about the Black Death. It's the play. Ring a Ring of Rosie, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. Not to sleep and get back up again, but to die. (laughs) The underworld has fascinated us. But even today... Our culture sees it as something that's not just fascinating or sexy, it is sensible, it's normal. The underworld pokes into our culture in different ways. Uh, in TV Week magazine, for example, or Women's Day, you know your Women's Day magazine, not my Women's Day, but your Women's Day, or wherever it is, you know, Bloke's Day, whatever magazine it is, you can pretty much find one of these things, a horoscope, where the underworld pokes into our world, you can find out what's going on in our world by what the underworld says. Um, I'm a Leo. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, this is my horoscope for the weekend. This weekend, in fact. Here it is. Uh, What's your name, by the way? Michael. Michael. Right. This is Michael and myself. Listen to this. Time with friends becomes more important. Michael. The old old saying, no man is an island, rings true. You realise that many benefits your friends bring to your life. There's a social butterfly energy around you, and now that helps you easily connect with new people. Easygoing get-togethers boost your mood. This is talking about kick-off camp. Oh my goodness! Whoa! The underworld pokes into our culture so much so that I can know what I'm going to do tomorrow because the underworld told me something out there. Out there, there, someone somehow knows what's happening in my life and they're interested. And so we get interested in them. Our society is marked by a fascination of the underworld. And from the beginning of recorded history, it's been that way. Egyptian, Assyrian, Chaldean, that is Babylonian, Greek and Roman histories have believed in the existence of the underworld and the existence of demons and angels and all sorts of things. We have an interest in the underworld. We, I mean, some of us suspect it's there. There are some of us, of course, had a big convention in Melbourne recently. It was quite hot, you know, convention. Some of us say, ah, oh, there's no such thing. But I think all of us suspect there's got to be something, or at least they bring questions like you brought questions. 
So that if you think this doesn't exist, this underworld's not there, you perhaps have a question that relates to the underworld because everyone relates to this world and the underworld in some way, and that begins at the graveside. From the atheist to the believer, we ask this question from the graveside. See, it would be easy to say, as people say, this is all there is. I mean, that's easy to say if there is no death. But the problem is, every time there's a death, everyone wants to know, where did they go? Because they were here, and now they're not. So don't tell me this is all there is, because I want to know where they went. They went to nowhere? They went, what? Where is it? What is there? Is it here? And where did my friend, relative go? These are the many questions that we have. There seem to be, though, as many answers, which leads to more confusion. So to avoid the confusion for our talks and discussions and questions, we're going to do something this weekend, in the midst of all this confusion, we're going to do something this weekend, I pray that you will come to love. We're going to find our answers in the Bible. See, if we stay in our world, trying to look at the underworld, kind of like the way that people that make up horoscopes do, kind of peering into the unknown, into the murky unknown, and making massive guesses that kind of suit people because, you know, well, that's just, you could make any sort of vague guess and it would suit me this weekend. You're going to feel tired. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, you're going to meet people. It's great. Um, you're going to be the, the cool person. Yeah, probably will be. But, you know, so <laughs> people can do that. They can make all sorts of guesses and they can kind of peer into the underworld, make massive assumptions. You can do that if you want. Or you can come and get some clear answers from someone who knows. We are going to go to the Bible. We're going to go to God's word on the underworld. And to do that, we're going to go to three texts, like I said. The first one starts in Luke 24. Because going to God's word on the underworld, we need to, we need to kind of see why. Why would we do that? There are lots of places you could go. Why would we go to God's word primarily? You know, I've only been doing student ministry in Bendigo now for four years. Four and a bit, if you include this one. Um, but I've noticed that all the problems that we've had of misunderstanding, all the problems we had of misunderstanding the world, misunderstanding God, has come back to two things. One, not reading the Bible, just closing it and putting it away. Or two, not reading it rightly. There is a right way to read the Bible. And people debate this and argue, and there's all sorts of scholarly debates you can read about. It's all very interesting. But there is a right way to read the Bible. How do I know this? Because there's evidently wrong ways and people do bad things because of it. There's a right way to read the Bible and that right way we find in Luke 24. In Luke 24, and you can read along with me, I said that once at a camp and everyone started reading at the same time. So just you understand I'm reading out loud and you're reading your mind. Luke 24 verse 44, Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus opens people's minds. People say, Christians, you're so close-minded. No, I want to say, actually, it's the other way around. Jesus opens people's minds. How does he do that? Does he kind of grab your head and go... No. He says, 
Open your Bible. He literally says, this is how you have an op- this is how you know what the world is about. So that as we see here, Jesus actually reveals reality. He shows us what reality is all about. And as he does so, on your outline there, you'll see that as he, as he reveals reality, he gives us windows into the underworld. Windows to see through, to see things. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is this revealing. In this, We have this doctrine of scripture, this belief, this understanding from the Bible that God has revealed himself in his word. From Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing, revealing, revealing. And the centerpiece of that revealing is all in the person of Jesus. And we see here that as this revealing happens and we look through these windows, Jesus is always the center of the room, like this building here, like it's Jesus' house. Jesus is always the center of the room. He is very crystal clear in the scriptures. Jesus is crystal clear with his words, his revealing of himself, of God. But as he's crystal clear, as Jesus reveals things, as the Bible does this, we see these windows just like in this building here, windows, we look at, we kind of get to see glimpses of things going on around. The underworld. Which means we need to realise as you read the Bible and as you look at the underworld, with all our questions, we see Jesus clearly, but we won't get everything answered exactly how we want it just yet because we're still looking out windows. The Bible has us looking at these windows at the background of the underworld. The underworld is not the big idea of the Bible. Jesus is. So the first question we ask as we look at these windows is, where is it? Have you ever thought about that? Where is this underworld? I mean, we're talking about what it is, but to start with, if we're going to find out what the underworld is, we need to find out where is it? You know, is it in Bendigo? I don't know. Like, Bendigo's, Bendigo is the centre of Victoria. There's actually a marker there that says this is the centre of the state. Will that make it the centre of... My hometown, some people say, is the centre of the occult, blah, blah, blah. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But where is the underworld? You could speculate and do that and guess, but, well, the Bible shows us where to begin. Go to Genesis chapter 3. See, the question is, when it comes to where is it, is... When did we first realise it was there, to start with? In terms of where is it, when did we first realise it was there? We start in Genesis 3, it's a pretty good place. Why? Because it's in the beginning. And in our first reading, Genesis 3, we, we read about this. I mean, Genesis 1, the context is Genesis 1, God has created everything. That's important. Because if we think about demons later on and Satan, God has created everything. Right? He is God, no one else is. Genesis 2, humanity is this pinnacle of creation that focuses in on humanity, and, and that's kind of, it's very good at this point. There's creatures, there's God, and we see this. Humanity is a special feature of creation. But in Genesis 3, everything is very good until the day Eve talks to someone who's not her husband. And this someone is not God. Someone else appears. 
not an animal or a beast because, well, we've already had some naming and stuff and they're not talking, but someone else appears and is talking. And we see the narrative, we picked it up, we read it earlier, we're probably familiar with it. We see the serpent, this serpent, picks Eve, Adam was with her, but he picks Eve. She is deceived, Adam follows suit. And then even though they're already image bearers, they have this desire to be godlike, not godly, but godlike. And they succumb to temptation to sin and they die. Our ancient grandparents met the underworld from the beginning. And since then, since then because of death, we have been going to the underworld from the beginning. Literally, we have been dying and going to the underworld. So we've always been aware of it because it's always been there. It's been present. There is something happening. And from beginning to end of Scripture, we've been aware of that ancient serpent, the devil. So that at the beginning of Scripture, we see the ancient serpent, and then right at the end of Scripture in Revelation 20, he's mentioned that ancient serpent, the devil, Revelation 20, verse 2. So he's always been there. It's always been there. Right through Scripture. Question is, still, where is there? The Bible, as we look through these windows, talks about spatial places. Spaces, places. So it uses language of the heavens. The heavens, heaven and hell. You can flick through, you don't have to if you don't want to, but I'm going to flick through a few things. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 we get this picture of the, the heavens. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is this idea of massive amount of space. Then in Ephesians 4, verses 9 and 10, we actually see, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we actually see not just the heavens, we see this idea of above and below and descending and ascending, and it's kind of strange, but we read this. He's, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. This is language in the scriptures of above and below, like Philippians 2, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is this language of spaces. Is that where the underworld is? I mean, that brings up all sorts of questions, though, doesn't it? As I mentioned earlier, questions of where is the underworld? Is it a distinct zone, like a school zone? You know, ooh, we're going through the underworld area now. Watch out, because we might be taken over or something. Is it a distinct zone? You know, I have a bit of a kind of laugh at that, but my hometown, as I mentioned earlier, um, people have they've mapped it. Okay, so. My grandfather was a Grandmaster Mason. Now, to some of you, that's like, okay, good for you. Cool. My grandfather was, I don't know, a blacksmith. But to be Grandmaster Mason in Tamora for people in my home church means that when every time I go home, there's a lady in church who wants to tell me you're cursed. You're cursed because your grandfather, who's a Grandmaster Mason, has the Masonic symbol on his tombstone. You are cursed to the third generation or something. And I'm like... Well, it's a happy club, isn't it? <laughs> and then the theory is, and you'll see there's a Masonic symbol on a bus out there, by the way, so in case you weren't freaked out enough already, whoa, we came from Bendigo. <laughs> the Mason sponsored the bus, oh dear. They've mapped out tomorrow with this symbol, my hometown. They put the symbol, apparently the Masons, I don't know who knows this and how they know this, but the Masons put the symbol tomorrow, mapped it out, and there's some sort of porthole thing happening, and. Really? Where in Scripture do we see that? 
Really? Does the places of heaven and hell under the, is, it, is it residing in Tamora, population 4,600? Is that really where it is? Because the Masons did something in their own spare time that I think is a waste of time, mind you, but really? But what about the places that perhaps the devils, the demons could inhabit that are inanimate objects? Like my footy boots. I once had a girlfriend um, who said to me, I'm not happy with your footy boots. I said, oh, why? She goes, because they've got the Nike symbol on them. And I said, yeah, I know, I wanted Adidas, but I couldn't afford them. She says, no, you don't understand. It's the, it's the symbol of a Greek god, and it's got, it's got a demon in it. And I said, oh, we've been going out for about a week now, so it was kind of, you know, we're getting to know each other a bit. <laughs> and it turns out she had a really strong belief in symbols and symbology. Symbols around her neck, and demons were in them. Evil spirits in inanimate objects. All sorts of questions of places and heaven and hell and the heavens bring up all these other questions of, are they in these inanimate objects? Are they in these places? Are they in towns? Is there portholes? What is going on here? Later we're going to see how this really is speculation. It really is. But the question of where did my friends go at the grave is where it starts. The question of location and spaces are answered in the underworld, though, in the Bible, when we see that the place is not so much concerned with this space or footy boots, whatever it is, it's actually concerned of the underworld at its heart, at its meaning, at its root meaning, is concerned with the place of the dead. That's what it's really about. In terms of where it is, it is the place of the dead. It's not Tamora, population 4,600. It's the place of the dead. And how do I know this? How do we know this? Well, it's from the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a word used for the place of the dead, Sheol. Sheol is the abode of the dead. It's where the righteous and the unrighteous go. The word appears in the writings, in the law and the prophets, but mostly in the writings. That should indicate something to us, shouldn't it? It should indicate that we can't kind of nail down stuff just from the Old Testament about Sheol. I mean, there's debates about soul sleep and there's debates about what are the dead doing, but you can't really nail that down necessarily from the Old Testament. What you need to do is go from the Old Testament and bounce into the New through Jesus, the lens, to understand what is this place of the dead. I mean, there are things that happen in the Old Testament that are kind of hard to understand, hard to see. They happen, for example, we know of the witch of Endor. You know, Saul's not supposed to. The Bible says don't go and get a medium and then conjure up a ghost to have a chat, right? You know what I'm talking about, science? Don't do that. What if Saul, he goes and does that, the king? And Samuel is woken up and he's not impressed. He woke me up. It's probably the worst sleeping he's ever had. And he has a chat. But that's, that's an incident. That's one incident. Never commanded. Never told. It's actually commanded against. We're told not to do that. In 1 Samuel 28, we see that it happens there. Yet, bouncing into the New Testament, it needs to happen in such a way that we see where does Sheol appear in the New Testament? Where does this place of the dead appear in the New Testament? I mean, if you, if you were just an Old Testament believer, and there are some people running around the world today who just want to be Old Testament believers. Come into Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. If you were just an Old Testament believer and you were thinking about the underworld as this place of the dead, which is what it means, you might end up being depressed about it for the rest of your life with no answers. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Uni students... Uni students, workers, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. 
In the Old Testament, the place of the dead is this place we can't nail down and exactly say what's going on there. And kind of, you know, we can kind of sort of have these windows, these insights, but the place of the dead is a bleak place. In Psalm 16, verse 10, come with me to Psalm 16, verse 10. In Psalm 16, though, is where we start to bounce into the New Testament. Because I wonder if you've noticed, the Old Testament is incomplete. The Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament. The Bible is not complete without the New Testament. You get to the end of the Old Testament, you're kind of like, is that it? The place of the dead, Sheol, it's pretty bleak. But in Psalm 16, verse 10, we get a glimmer of something. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Here is some hope that somehow, it's, it's mysterious hope at that, isn't it? It's a mystery. But here is some hope that somehow this place of the dead, God knows about. And he knows about, and he's not going to let people stay there. Somehow there's, there's something happening. And so we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 27 to 31. And in Acts chapter 2, we hear this phrase repeated again. But notice, it's a different word. For you will not abandon my soul, Acts chapter 2, verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here we see the place of the dead is not just this place that stays where the dead stay and we're not sure what happens to them, it's all murky. The New Testament progressively makes things clearer. Like I said at the beginning, the Bible is God's revelation. He's revealing what's happening in the world over time. And as we come to the New Testament and we meet Jesus, the interpretive lens of Scripture, we understand the underworld much better, much clearer. Hades is the Greek word for the place of the dead. Sheol, Old Testament, Hades, New Testament, it's the same, it's the same idea, it's the same place. Hades occurs ten times in the New Testament. Peter quotes it here. It can mean death in the New Testament, a place of punishment for the wicked. We see in Revelation 20, verses 13 and 14. Come with me to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verses 13 to 14. We see that Hades is not just the place of the dead, it's something else. Revelation 20, verses 13 to 14. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each according to them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Which means... Where we started with, where is the underworld? Where is this place? Where you start that question at the graveside, you're going to be finding an answer. The underworld begins understanding it at the place of the dead. It is a real realm. It is a place. It is the place of the dead. And the next question, more importantly then, therefore, the bigger question of the underworld is not just where it is. The question is, who is there? Who is there? Who is out there? And to get some answers, and to keep thinking about this, let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, that was our other reading we read earlier. Who is out there has been a question since the start of time. Who is out there? Who exactly is this? See, it's perhaps not the darkness of the grave... And what's beyond that that frightens us the most, that scares us the most, or intrigues us the most, it's not that, it's, it's actually who is there, isn't it? 
And we see in, in Luke 4, like in Genesis 3, there is someone and he's speaking. There is a being, a person. And we're going to find more about, about this person, more about this person later on, this evening, in Dave's talk. This is Satan. This is the devil, that ancient serpent. We'll find a lot about him about tonight, but just for now, look at this text, and we see in Luke 4, verses 1 to 13, we see this, this picture, this, this story, this narrative, this event that happened, and it's so similar to Genesis 3. Did you notice how similar it is? Genesis 3, the underworld poked into our world. It's like Satan poked his head in. Hi. Don't eat. No. Do. No. Don't trust God's word. No, do. I'm confusing you, aren't I? That's my job. I'm a deceiver. He pokes his head into the world and says, Hi. Did God say you'll die? No, you won't, don't you? Just, just eat it. Don't trust God, basically, is his message. With all his confusing words. And what he does with his confusing words, he gets God's words and twists them. Doesn't he? See, Satan doesn't really have a lot of his own ideas. He just gets God's words and twists them with his own big idea, which is to take from God, deceive. So we see here in Luke 4, again, Satan pokes his head into the world. The underworld comes into our world. And as he does so, with his self-appointed authority, with his temptation, and his using scripture to do it, twisting scripture, notice who he does it to. Who does he meet? The second Adam, Jesus. The first Adam completely stuffed it up. The temptation was, are you going to trust God at his word or not? It was, wasn't kind of like a, some sort of, you know, satanic, satanistic, demonic possession, grab the head and twist it around. It was just, here's a question. Will you trust God at his word or not? Adam fails. There's our history. There's our ancient grandparents. Here, there's another person. And Satan is intent on tempting this person. This second go at this new go at humanity, this, this new start in Jesus, this second Adam. And notice how Satan does it. He does it in the same, his method is the same. He grabs scripture and he uses it and he abuses it and he twists God's word. And the New Testament consistently warns us about him. He is the central feature of, central character, the central figure of who is out there that is bad. People have either ignored Satan or obsessed over him. And there's been accusations of diabolical. The word diabolical comes from the word, you know, from the word we use in the scriptures for Satan. Diabolical or satanic witchcraft first arose about 809, sorry, 900 AD. Since then, Satanism has been around in some way or form. And yes, the Church of Satan was established in 1996. And some people make Satan their religion, but even Christians, even Christians, obsess so much about the underworld and so much about Satan that they sell books on fear of him. They make money out of Christians' fear of Satan and they sell millions of dollars of books to make us more afraid to sell more books, to tell us how to deal with Satan. But if you look at the New Testament, and you've only got to look, I mean, you could look at many places where Jesus deals with demons, and we'll do that this weekend. You look at many places where Jesus deals with Satan in the end, and we'll look at that this weekend. But even this small picture here in Luke 4, do you notice how Jesus deals with Satan? Overall, we see in the New Testament, Satan's a loser. At this stage we get from the Bible, we do see he's an evil person. He's to be avoided. 
We are to flee from Satan, but not to fear. Revelation 2 verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw you into prison. Don't fear him. Flee him. Flee his temptations, his twisting words. He is the leader of a lesser group of spirits. Yes, they're under his control, it seems, but they can't move their fingers without God being in control of them. Satan can't move his finger without God actually overseeing that. We'll see that later today. So that even when we see the who is there, we see Satan, we see his demons, his, his kind of legion, his troops, and we'll find more about them as well uh, later on in a Bible discussion group. We'll see these demons. Where do they come from? Who are they? What are they? It doesn't particularly matter for this talk, and you can answer those questions later, but the big idea here is to see they are there. They are there, and they're also losers. There are a few references to them in Scripture. We see that there are there in these places, these spatial places, there is, there's angels and there's demons and there's Satan, they're all active. But in all of this, there's one more of the who of the underworld that we need to consider. One more person. And that is us. Peter Bolt's book, it's one of the books, I think, probably in the bookstall, The Underworld. It's a good little text to begin to start thinking about the underworld. And he makes a point of saying this, I'll quote him, the underworld can only do what it does because it exploits the weakness in the rest of us. His point is, Peter Bold is talking about sin. Do you know when Adam and Eve, they met the underworld and then they went there. They met the underworld face to face in the serpent and then they went there. We've been going there ever since, right? It's because we're sinful. Sin is connected to death, connected to the underworld, the place of the dead. Lots of people want to dismiss sin. It's not true. Um, one of our students uh, is a social work student, and one, I think it was one of our faculty or friends said, you know, social work is the Jesus work without the sin bit. And people sort of think sin is this kind of this, you know, it's religious construct. It's not true. Sin is so easy to prove, though. It is so easy to prove. But it's more than academic, it's pandemic, and we are sick with it. People say there's no master over me. There is. It's your sinful heart. And ultimately, your sinful heart belongs to the realm of the devil. So that if you don't belong to the kingdom of God, if you don't belong to the king who is Jesus, you actually do belong to the other realm. There's no other third realm. There's no kind of like Jesus realm, the underworld, and, you know, AFL. There's no other realm. So as we see these windows into the underworld, we see the who of the underworld matters so much. And the who, in its connection to you, matters so much. So if we're going to ask lots of questions this weekend, if we're going to examine all these things in detail, we need to answer our questions through the right windows. And to do that, as we've looked briefly at where is the underworld, the place of the dead, and who is there, and we do that with more detail for the rest of this weekend, here's how we're going to do it. On your outline, here's how our understanding of the underworld is going to happen if we're going to read the Bible rightly. See, there are four windows to find out how we know what the underworld is on this camp. There is the underworld of reasoning. Point one there, you'll see under our understanding, the underworld of reasoning. I don't need to tell you what your friends tell you, you know this. Your friends will say things like, 
I don't believe in the underworld. I heard you're going on this camp at the weekend. I heard it at your gospel groups. I don't believe in that. It's just not there. There's nothing there. Western rationalism has blinded people. It really has. But I think what makes me more cranky is that there are even Christians who dismiss the underworld. We generally, big generalization, call them liberal Christians. Liberal Christianity has dismissed belief in the underworld. Frederick Schleiermacher, for what we can like about him, said, which I disagree with him, that belief in the devil and demons is childish. But the old trick, the old saying, and you've probably heard it before, it's been in a movie, I think, the greatest trick of the devil is convincing people he doesn't exist. So that many in our society see the underworld simply as a psychological problem. That's all it is. You believe in something that's a figment. Well, if you want to find out more about how this interacts with our world, I think it's Nick Rundle's discussion. He's going to look at demons and sickness. Am I right? I hope I'm right. But then, what about the underworld of tradition? Point two. See, I think from going from that doesn't exist at all... We have tended to, when I say the royal we, the church, Christianity, has tended to swing in the other extreme and base all our information upon just traditions. We're young, are we? You know, I'm putting myself in your category. I'm wanting you to see lots of nods. Yeah, we're very, we're all very young. Yes, yes. We're the new generation. We are the ones who are the young punks who walk into old churches with old traditions and say, oh, we would never do that, we would never have traditions. And we're going to take all the plaques off the wall and we're going to have a rocking band and wear a black jacket put gel in my hair because we don't have traditions. But we do. And when it comes to the underworld, I think we too easily believe in traditions rather than going to the Bible. I mean, for some funny examples of traditions, you know, the old guys, the church fathers, you know, the old big books that are too hard to read, we won't read them, but we'll talk about them. You know, Cyprian, ha ha ha, he argued that the fall of Satan happened because he was enraged with jealousy because God created human beings and he was being our friend and he's like, well, I don't want that, I don't want, you know, I want to be... So Cyprian believes Satan just got angry because we were created. We just don't know exactly if that's the case. Origen, he, he, he argued, another church father came up with the idea of guardian angels. That was his idea, by the way, you know, kind of continued by others. That's right, Oregon, he was touched by an angel. Have you seen that show in daytime television? Daytime television is bad for you, don't watch it. But there's a show touched by an angel where, where the underworld pokes its head in, but it's always a very you know pretty kind of middle-aged woman um, or a really smirky-looking man, and he's always kind of like touching people, the angel. <laughs> tradition. Church father's tradition. Someone thought of that idea. And just to show, just to show I'm not dissing the church fathers, one of my favourites, Augustine, Augustine, came up with the idea that angels were created as part of the light in Genesis 1 verse 3 and the darkness of the demons. He came up with that idea. But then there's, of course, Thomas Aquinas. He came up with an angel hierarchy and a demon hierarchy and speculated that redeemed human beings would later become angels. Maybe that's your career ambition too. Become an angel one day. Then there's Dante, and he came up with this idea of levels of heaven and hell and his inferno, and it's like all sorts of stuff in church tradition. And we so easily look at that and go, yeah, we'd never believe that. Except we do. One of the recent traditions in our own church history has been shaped by those novels. Those novels on spiritual warfare. Frank Peretti wrote fiction. He, did, he really he wrote fiction to start with. It's funny because we, we hate it when people say, oh, the Da Vinci Code, it's so real. Like, it's fiction. 
Yet we go and read Frank Pree's stuff and go, oh, that's so real. He wrote fiction. And then guys like Wagner and other guys, they, they pick it up and they turn it into spiritual warfare stuff where you've got you know, the fiction of the present darkness turns into Peter Wagner's strategic level spiritual warfare and it's all this stuff and we believe in it, this tradition that we've invented. Not really in the Bible, but we believe this tradition, we just think it's all true. And anyone that questions that tradition, woe behold to them. It's a tradition. Where is it in Scripture? If you want to find out more, go to Joel Thomas's Bible discussion. Three, what about the underworld of my experience? My parents are missionaries in Zambia. It's a country in southern Africa, pretty Christianized. But there, there are still witch doctors and all sorts of things, and things that are hard to explain, hard to understand. To be sure, there are lots of experiences that my dad and mum have seen that, you know, it's different than Australia. There are lots of experiences that we've had that I've had that perhaps are different. But here's the kicker. We can't let our experience be the authority for the windows into how the world works. Because that gets very confusing, and if it's our authority, it's often wrong, isn't it? Our experience can't be our authority. Don't let your experience be the authority on the subject of the underworld. I'll give you an illustration of why, how this doesn't work, why it doesn't work. At our campus, we have a Japanese student. He has just come his first year straight from Japan to study at Bendigo. And um, <clears throat> the, the men, so you know, they've been kind of hanging out with him and having him over for dinner, trying to meet with him, read the Bible with him, things like that. And he said... I'm happy to come over for dinner, he told Joel, I'm happy to come over for dinner, but I don't want to talk about God. Now, we all assumed, because he's from Japan, and if you know, there's not many Christians in Japan, we all assume he's got a secular worldview, he doesn't want to talk about God. Do you know why he doesn't want to talk about God? Because he doesn't want to offend his ancestors. He's wrong. His experience is wrong, you say. How do you know? It's his experience. That's his authority. You have your experience. You use it as your authority. How can you dare argue against someone's experience? You see how we can't do that? You can't let your experience or whatever it is, if we let that be his experience, his authority of the underworld, we know that's not right. So why do we let our experiences be our authority? I'm not saying don't share your experiences. Let's talk over lunch, whatever else. I'm just saying don't let your experience of whatever it is you think it is be your authority for your window into the underworld. In the end, point four, it's got to be the underworld of the Bible, hasn't it? See, we need to make sure that our picture, as much of a glimpse in Scripture that it is, our picture of the underworld is this glimpse that is still our solid picture. While Jesus is central in the room, the windows in the underworld, the glimpses that we get are the solid picture of that background. That's what we keep as our authority for understanding the underworld. And with that picture, we use it as the context for looking as this background. We use it as the context for understanding what we know. There will be times where we will need to say, with biblical authority, we just don't know on that particular hard, tricky question. And if you want to speculate, okay. But the church fathers speculated about things like, you know, angels dancing on a pinhead. How many can you get? We know it's funny and silly. Just be careful of going into silly, irreverent myths. And make sure it's based on Scripture. And by Scripture, 
by the underworld of the Bible, we can actually know what the underworld is, we can know where it is, the place of the dead, we can know who is there, even us, one day, but we also know what it is not. The underworld is not playful. It's not a plaything. You know, the star signs seem a bit of fun, horoscopes are you know, a bit of fun, I think they're a bit horrible actually, but whatever it is, the underworld, Satan, his demons and the things, it's not, it's not a plaything. It's, it's the playground of often evil. It's not, it's not a plaything. And it's something that we're going to look at seriously from Scripture. And when we look at things like Satan from Scripture, we notice from Scripture what the Bible says is our authority on Satan. It's funny, isn't it? The Satanists. Someone say, oh, you know, I'm with Satan. I'm going to say, have you read the Bible? He's kind of got a pretty good description of Satan there. He loses, but not only does Satan appear there, but he is the one. Satan is the one that uses Scripture to stop us going to Scripture. Isn't that interesting? So we come to a camp, a kickoff camp, with all our questions, as I said at the start, all their ideas. We're going, I want to know the answers to this, and I'm sure there'll be question time, and you might not agree with answers, and I'm sure you could easily walk away grumbling. I don't really like that staff work because they gave the wrong answer, and I'm, I'm right on this one. But just notice, be careful, be warned, big sign. The one who doesn't want you to find the answers in Scripture is Satan himself. If you want to step away from Scripture, you want to base it on your own experience, the one person who wants that most of all, is Satan. In Luke 4, in Genesis 3. I mean, look at, look at Genesis 3. He says, listen to me, Adam and Eve. I'm kind of a big deal. Listen to me. Don't listen to God. Don't listen to his word, the Bible, scripture. Listen to me. And better than that, Luke 4, when we go to Luke 4, we see, he says to Jesus, of all people, he says to Jesus, I'll give you all things. Listen to me. Do what I dare. Jump. Listen to me. He's a twister of scripture. He is a liberal theologian's dream when it comes to saying, God didn't mean that by his word. Listen to God's word. Don't listen to Satan. He will take you anywhere but God's word. And if he gets you there in the end, because that's where you're going, he wants to twist it to his own ends, his own destruction and yours. Listen to God's word. And notice how to do that from Luke 4. This is our method for this weekend. In that text of Luke 4, notice how hungry and tempted Jesus is. He's tempted beyond measure, the Bible says, beyond what we can understand. He is so hungry and tempted. And you can imagine this scene. Here is Satan, and he's kind of dancing around, and he's, you know, because that's what the movies tell us, but let's just say, he's, you know, for, for purposes sake, at least we don't know he's dancing, but he's there. <laughs> he didn't get those bit of sarcasm anyway. <laughs> Satan is there, what we can see in scripture, he's there, but we know Jesus from scripture, from the Bible, he's hungry and he's being tempted. You know what that's like, don't you? You know what it's like to be tempted. Have you felt it? It could be so easy to do this. Jesus is tempted. He's there, he's being tempted by Satan, doesn't sin. Do you notice how Jesus fights temptation? Do you notice how Jesus answers Satan's accusations and he's twisting a scripture? He says again and again, in his tired and his hungry state, it is written. It is written. In his tired and tempted, the hungry state, he says, it is written. It is written. We need to read the Bible and read it rightly. 
We need to go to the one who makes all things clear in Scripture. We need to go to the one, the same one who deals with the underworld himself on our behalf. We need Jesus. One of the things the Bible does for us is records history of our world and the underworld. God has spoken about the underworld and he speaks and he reveals things progressively. The central person of the Bible is Jesus and yes, the underworld is the periphery, but Jesus is the big deal. And we see in the Bible, as we read through Jesus, lasting and outlining, in conclusion, it's a real world under God. That question again. What is the underworld? And how do we know? Well, we know Jesus is sovereign. God is sovereign. Even over angels, demons, and the prince of demons, Satan himself. And the scriptures speak with full authority because they're Jesus' words. That's God's word. So if you want to know the sovereign, authoritative word on the subject, it's the Bible. It really is. Even more than your experience. More than my experience. Any experience, any personal experience, any book, any preaching, any teaching that we have must be taken captive to the word of God on this. I don't mind debate. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, I really don't mind debate. I I kind of enjoy it. If I wasn't driving a tractor, I'd be debating. But please don't leave this camp in blind disagreement without showing from the Scriptures. I don't mind debate, but don't leave just grumbling about someone because you disagree with me. And I don't mind disagreeing. I don't mind what you say about being behind my back, really. I sleep well at night, by the way. I really do. But don't leave grumbling and in your own bitterness with murky, unclear ideas that you stay with the rest of your life without going to God's Word and showing us why, how. Go to God's Word. Listen to God. It's okay to disagree with someone, but do it with God's Word open. It's the authority. It's a dangerous enterprise to ignore God's authoritative Word on any subject, let alone the underworld. The centre is Christ. The periphery is the underworld. It's a bit blurry in the Bible, but the windows are there. We can see it. But make sure you get your information from the Bible. How do we know about the underworld? Jesus Christ has been there. We won't know everything exactly in great detail, but what we can know, we can know well because of Jesus. We will see in later Bible talks and Bible discussions that Jesus, he had no fear of the underworld. And we don't need to have fear either. So to stop fearing and finish this weekend dealing with all our questions, trust in Jesus and listen to his word. Let's pray we will. Our gracious God, thank you for making things clear. We pray that we would return to your word again and again and again. That with all our questions, as we look at different aspects of the underworld, that we would see it is written. It is written. It is written and trust in your word that we would trust in Jesus. We ask this for us, that we would do this, that we would have our minds renewed, that our hearts would be moved by your spirit working in us, that by faith, by this action, we would trust in Jesus and love hearing him on the subject of the underworld. And we pray that this would see us grow in the knowledge and love of Christ, grow in our awareness and understanding of the underworld, most of all, give you glory as we thank you for your word. 
and your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.